Good morning. The scripture passage this morning will be um, in Luke chapter 17, if you'd like to follow along with me. Um, If you'd like to use the Bibles in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 1595. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking, for, uh, looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Thanks, Becca. So if nothing else happens this morning, you can say to people, Anytime you say, so watch yourself, you can say, it's in the Bible. So there's that. You get that, no matter what this morning. Okay, so it would be a little weird if my wife and I got up one morning, and I'm getting ready to go to work, and um, we're talking about what we're going to do today. It's her day to cook dinner, and before I leave, we get in like a little quarrel, right, which is a nicer word for fight or argument, and then I leave, and then I come home, right, and I, and she says, you know, I don't really feel good about the quarrel we had this morning. Would you forgive me for my part in that? And I said to her, well, I went to work today, so I don't really have to. And then I noticed that she hadn't made any dinner, and I was like, maybe I thought it was your day to make dinner. It doesn't look like we've made anything. It's like 5.30, and she's like, well, I did laundry today, so I don't really have to. Right? Sp- moral and spiritual entitlement— is a human universal, and it usually doesn't come across in such obvious ways as that, but it is a fundamental human universal. One of the ways that um, adults see it a lot is we see it in parenting, because it's so obvious in our kids. Like, our kids—you know, you tell your kid to do something better, something that's really important, like talking to their sister better, right? And they're like, they're like, I do everything else good. And you're like, you're supposed to do everything else good. Like, what do you think? You get some kind of merit for doing your homework so that you can, like, yell at your sister? Like, the the two are completely unrelated, right? And yet, observe yourself. Observe other adults. It's a universal human reality that we think that whenever we do something that we think is good, that that makes it so, like, we have some kind of good asset, and we can choose to spend it instead of doing the good in something else. And part of the point of this passage is Jesus is like, that is not how reality actually works. Spiritual entitlement is a kind of corruption that destroys our spiritual lives, destroys the spiritual lives of others, wrecks relationships, makes us smaller, weaker, and brittle people, ignores God's lordship over all things, and basically ruins everything. And what you need to realize to understand how to escape that is to realize— I am an unworthy servant, and I've only ever, at my best day, just done my duty. Now, I want to run through this passage. Basically, I just want to go through the passage, kind of explain what the different parts mean, and then just do some applications, okay? There'll be like two message thingies, and then two like conceptual things, and then we'll talk about some applications. So, um, 
in the commentaries on this section of Luke, in fact, if you look at the Bible, it, it, the heading for this in the NIV Bible that we have in the pews is faith, comma, sin, comma, faith, comma, duty. Right? It's like the worst heading in the Bible, okay? And, and because in the commentaries, it's often treated like four separate sayings of Jesus that Luke didn't know really where to put them, and so he kind of stuck them all together and kind of stuck them in here and like, there you go. Shazam. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's a terrible way to interpret this passage. Part of the reason for that is some of the sayings that Jesus puts in here show up in different places in other Gospels, but they show up together here. So sometimes the commentators would be like, well, you know, there are these ancient sources, and Luke got this from this source and that from that one, and he just scrunched them all together. Okay, there's two reasons why that's dumb, okay? The first is that you say the same thing over and over again in different contexts, meaning different things. You and I do that. Like, you have some story you tell or some illustration that you like, and you're like, it's like this. And then you compare something to that thing, but then next week you'll use the same illustration and compare it to something different with some different, like, result. So Jesus, for example, uses the concept of a mustard seed in a couple of different ways. In one way, he uses it as like the seed that like grows the biggest thing in the garden. In another, he's like, well, if your faith is this size, when he talks about yeast, sometimes yeast is this thing that gets in and infects something and works its way through. And another thing is something that secretly works its way through. Like he's using the same thing illustrated in different ways. So just because he says here that he references a mustard seed— and that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that can do big things, doesn't mean that this is like a weird place to put it. It's not even the same saying. Jesus probably said similar sayings like this all the time in different contexts for different reasons. And even worse than that, this is the way Luke presents it. It's better to just read it the way Luke presents it than imagine how it might have been in ancient sources we don't even have. Okay? The point of that is this. These four sayings Luke puts together in a single narrative because we are supposed to see them all related and making a single point. And they're not just themselves a narrative. They are connected to the narrative of chapter 16 before it and chapter 15 before that. Luke signals the end of the narrative by telling us after this passage that Jesus then travels again. So now you know, oh, this is a different episode. Does that make sense? So what are the four episodes? Okay, let me see. Let's go. Let's get on the slides here. Okay. Episode one. Watch yourself. Now, for context, chapter 16, which we did now months ago, was about the parable of the shrewd servant, right? This guy, he's like wasting his master's money, and the master finds out about it. And he's like, dude, you can't work here anymore. And so the guy's like, ugh. So before he—and he, he has to turn in his books. So before he turns in his books, he gets these like three guys that owe his master a lot of money, and he like cancels out part of their debt so that they'll like him after he doesn't have his job anymore, and they'll help him out because he's not—he just got fired for fraud. He's not going to find a job easily, right? So— he does, so he uses basically his position to get himself a better position later. And Jesus is like, this is what you should do, right? All people. You should take everything that you've got in this world, and you should use it to make friends for yourselves, so that when you enter heavenly dwellings, you'll have friends there, right? And then he attacks the Pharisees, and it says, because they loved money, right? And basically he argues that the Pharisees have done literally exactly the reverse, Right? The Pharisees are people whose job it is to take spiritual and moral resources and teach the dictates and the truths of heaven in the world. And he says what they actually did was, is they took those heavenly resources and they made friends for themselves monetarily in this world. It's literally the opposite of what Jesus says everybody should do. And then he says, right after that, he gets done attacking them, and then he goes, and then it says this. Luke says, then he turned to his disciples. So he was just yelling at the Pharisees. He tells this terrible, terrifying story against them about the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man ends up, ends up in hell, and he doesn't have any friends to help him, and it's bad, right? Okay, then he turns to his disciples, and he says, listen, you guys. Terrible sins and really bad things are going to come into the world. That can't be stopped. But the person through who they come into those people's lives is still completely responsible for bringing it into their lives. Now, the image he uses, I and I want you to notice that in the three, three of the four episodes in this passage, 
Jesus is using an incredibly aggressive illustration. And if he's using three incredibly aggressive illustrations right in a row, he is making a really, really important point. Do you understand? Like, you don't talk like this. I mean, think of the first metaphor. If you do this thing that's in the first passage, you would be way better off if we took you out to sea, wrapped a rope around your neck, tied it to a 500-pound millstone that has a hole in the middle of it so you can tie the rope through it easily, and then we throw you and the stone overboard. Okay? Now, I was a scuba diver. Like, I know what it means to be, like, terrified in 70 feet of water, okay? Like, it, it, like most people who die scuba diving do not die because of equipment failure. They don't die because a shark eats them. They die from panic. Okay, there's two ways you die scuba diving. Mainly one is you're a middle-aged dude and you get really drunk and go scuba diving and you have a heart attack, but usually induced by fear. And two, something you didn't expect happens, and because you're in like 100 feet of water, you freak out. Like you shoot a fish through your spear and they swim around you. Now you're wrapped up in a wire in 85 feet of water. That's not a problem unless you freak out, right? Like imagine the panic. Okay, think about this. I mean, just think about the metaphor for me. Like, most people just hear that and they go, I'm not even going to think about that. Okay, I mean, think about it for a second. First of all, imagine somebody wrapping the rope around your neck and throwing you in the ocean with a 500-pound stone. You can't tread water in that situation, okay? Now, what, what you experience, besides your ears exploding and blood pouring out of them, is you plummeting to the bottom of the ocean. So every second that passes, you are more lost than the second before it. You have less hope. You are more damned, and you know it until you get down to the bottom and you die. It's horrible. Right? And like Jesus is like, so, and he, he just got done with the Pharisees, right? The disciples was like, man, he really gave it to them. And he's like, listen. Right? And then he says this to his own followers, his disciples. He's like, look, right? That's serious business. Okay, so what is the thing he's saying? Now, the NIV translation, this is one of the situations where the new NIV translation does a better job of translating than the old one. He says, things that cause people to stumble. Okay, now, in the Old Testament in particular, the metaphor of somebody stumbling was almost always in the context of war or battle, okay? If you stumble and fall in battle, that's enough to get you killed. Do you understand? So it's not like we think of stumble as like you're walking around and you stumble and you're fine. Whoa. (laughs) You stumble and maybe you knock down all the communion elements. In a horrifically sacrilegious way. But you're fine. Like, you know, you just keep walking, right? Anybody who has kids knows this. But that's not what stumble really means. The Greek word behind it is the word scandalizo, where we get our words to scandal, a scandal. It doesn't mean what the English word scandal means, but it means the same thing as what a scandal causes, okay? So we used to have a word in English called to scandalize, which meant basically this, that something happens that kills your faith in something. Okay? So you could have like a scandal in the government, right? And assuming we had some faith in government, then it could like, it could hurt our faith in that governmental institution, right? Or, um, or there could be like a scandal, like the, the Catholic Church is having another round of these sex scandals, right? Like that erodes, it like scandalizes, it hurts people's faith in that institution. The most important institution in the universe is the administration of God as king over all of creation, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, okay? It is an administration. It is in that sense a cosmic institution, and it is the cosmic institution that all human beings are invited into forever on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that all could come as favors, sons and daughters, and be his and be in his kingdom forever. And his kingdom is not a corrupt place, and there is no reason to be scandalized about it. And yet, Jesus just got done reaming out a whole class of people who had taken their sacred duty, who had turned it into financial monetary gain and and worldly position, and was destroying the faith of people because they had little to believe in with these people as their spiritual leaders. And he turns to them, he says, listen, these guys act like this corruption is no big deal. They do it every day. They trade in the pearls of the kingdom of God for the swine of worldly gain, and they just do it. And when they do it, they destroy the faith of the people that watch them. Because people who watch them see they don't believe in God. 
They don't believe in the kingdom. They don't believe in the dictates of the truths of, the, of God's word. They don't believe any of that stuff. What they believe in is using that stuff to get themselves the position and the money and the power and the control and the comforts that they want. And what it does to people's hearts, especially people who they're in charge of, is it scandalizes them. It destroys their capacity to have any trust in the institution of the kingdom of God because these jokers are supposed to represent it. Right? And then Jesus turns to his jokers, his disciples, and he says, Listen, guys, in this new kingdom, after my death and resurrection, when I institute this new covenant, which we'll celebrate today in communion, you are those new jokers. You are those new people who have been given these resources. And I've called in Luke 16 to utilize those worldly resources for heavenly gains and, and for heavenly truths. And that's your job. And when, if you corrupt that, the result on people is you will scandalize them. You will destroy their capacity to trust in the institution of the kingdom of God and its King Jesus. And if you do that, that is an offense, the seriousness of which you cannot fathom. Right? Did you notice the water depth metaphor I just used there? No? Okay. Um, it's like, it's, it's incredibly important. And the, the, so the reason— so why does Jesus use such a terrible metaphor? I mean, this is a top five terrible metaphor, right? It's terrible, right? Okay, here's why. Because we're drunk with the stupidity of our entitlement. We need to get sobered up, and sometimes you need to get slapped around a little to get sobered up. Like he's trying to do something that's stern enough, that's powerful enough, that's brutal enough to get our attention in a place in human existence where we do not want to give our attention, right? And so he's like, listen— you—now, you might be like, okay, whoa, whoa, Nick. Are you basically saying that if at any point in my life I do anything that has some kind of spiritual corruption in it, that its effect on any other person is that they turn away from Jesus permanently, feel like I am going to, like, the worst and hottest hell? No. No. Actually, in, in um, Luke 7.23, Jesus says about himself in his own ministry, he's like, blessed is the person that doesn't get scandalized because of me. It's the same word. You see, Jesus— what Jesus recognizes is if you do everything right, some people are still going to take offense and choose to be scandalized away from God, okay? And whether or not you've done something in the past that has caused somebody to turn away or they've used it as an excuse or some, some mix of that, right? Jesus is not saying here that there is no forgiveness. Jesus says in another place there's only no forgiveness for one thing, and it's something that causes you to never ask for forgiveness again. That's not the point. The point is the seriousness of the offense. The point is to recognize by means of the deserved penalty how serious is the thing it is that we would never want to do it. That the most important thing about you socially is the effect you have on other people and whether or not your life helps them believe in the authority of heaven or not. It is the most important thing about you socially. And it could never be otherwise. And so therefore, your pursuit of money, your pursuit of power, your pursuit of ambition, your pursuit of affirmation, your pursuit of anything you want to pursue, anything even that's good to pursue, you could never pursue it in a way that would scandalize any other human being, predictably. Right? That's the first one. Okay. The second one is, if that's true, what is the most common thing that we overlook as disciples of Jesus, as the ministers of heaven, that will cause people to be scandalized, people to leave the fold and flock of God and never return, people to so lose their belief in the integrity of the institution of Jesus that they depart from it? And that is that they are not shepherded in the flock. Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the one who shepherds his flock. What is done with sheep? They're brought back in when necessary, sometimes harshly, and they are received back in when they return. And so Jesus is like, listen. And so this is connected to the passage right before it. Part of not scandalizing people is you have to do your relational job. You can't say, well, you know, I go to church, and I give money, and I read my Bible, and I do—I'm nice to people. I do my religious stuff. So, like, I don't have to deal with the, like, 
the like r- really awkward social issues of like people sitting against me or me sitting against them and dealing with all that, right? That's the most uncomfortable part of having healthy relationships, having a unified flock, having a people who are spiritual family with one another. The hardest thing, the thing you most want to avoid is rebuking and forgiving, right? And so Jesus gives two commands here. He says, if somebody sins against you, rebuke them. That is an imperative. That is not optional, right? If somebody sins against you, you don't pretend nothing happened. It's your job to be like, hey, that was wrong. You can't do that. You should not have done that to me, right? And then it says, then if they repent, they acknowledge that they've done it to you, and they say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, it's your job to forgive them. So those are the two imperatives. You have to rebuke, you have to confront, and you have to forgive. And you don't get to count. In this passage, he says seven times. In another passage, he says 70, seven times seven, or 70 times seven, or depends on how you translate it. A lot of times, okay? In one day. The point is, is that nobody does that, all right? Unless, you know, you have teenagers in your household or something like that, you know? The point is, is that you don't get to count, and you have to rebuke when it's appropriate, and you have to forgive when it's appropriate, and you have to do it over and over and over again without tiring, without stopping, without trying to give that responsibility for somebody else, without saying, well, I'll rebuke them if they do it again, or I'll—right? One of the worst ways to try to rebuke people is to wait till they do it three or four times, and then go to them when you're really mad. Virtually nobody changes their behavior when you tell them they've done something wrong one time. Almost nobody does. In fact, I've had people on staff come to me and be like, Nick, you did this thing like four times. You really need to stop doing it. I'm like, you're totally right. I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry for all four times and the other times maybe you're not counting. But here's what I need to tell you. This is not the last time you're going to rebuke me for this. I need you to come and tell me I did it wrong every time I do it wrong. And then I'm going to try to get better every time until it's no longer part of my character. And sometimes when I tell people that, they look at me kind of funny like, no, you just need to stop doing it. (laughs) Right? Which is right, but that's not actually how people develop. Right? What people need is a lot of kind corrections so that they can see like soon after they did something like that, that it happened and what the result of it was, they need to be affirmed and they'd be like, oh, I don't want to do that. And they need that oftentimes multiple times, sometimes over the course of years. Right? Why do you think, why do you think, why do you think other people develop differently than your children? That's how we do with children. If you don't do that with children, it's bad. They need, they need a bunch of redirections. Not like coming down on them hard because they did it five times or something like that. Do you understand? Okay. So Jesus, so that's the second hard one. So the first one is like Bill Stone thrown into the ocean. The second one's like, even if it's seven times in one day, you forgive every time, right? To which then the disciples get to the point where they're like, okay, I don't like this. And they say, increase our faith. Now, this is the main part of the passage where it's important to realize that all ten verses go together. Because in the commentaries and in the historical sermons where the the preacher or commentator doesn't realize these should all go together, they see this as a pious statement. Like a faithful, like, deep statement. Now, it is in one sense a pious statement. They're saying what they think they should say. But what happens is if you don't see that these go together, you think that this is the right thing to say, and it's not the right thing to say. This is the wrong thing to say. Okay? They say to Jesus, after he says you need to forgive seven times, they go, Jesus, increase our faith. You've given us four imperatives. Let's get—let's let's give you one. <laughs> right? And when, so what he says, listen, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this tree to just uproot itself and go plant itself in the ocean and it'll happen. Right? Now you see, if you don't understand this all goes together, you'll be like, you see what Jesus says? Jesus says that if you have faith, if you believe, amazing things can happen. Amazing things can happen. Right? Which is, in fact, true. There are many places where Jesus talks about faith and where the apostles talk about faith and where God reveals things in the Old Testament about faith, where the point is, if you have real faith, any faith, amazing things will happen. Okay? That's totally true. That is not what that verse means. Right? What that verse means is, your problem, your faith problem, is not a problem with volume. Okay? It's not like you need a better faith conditioner. Right? Like, it's not— Like, the problem is, like, you need more faith. That's not even a thing, 
right? Like that's not, that's not the problem. The problem is not that you need more faith, okay, right? Oh, sorry. He, he's, he's saying, if you, if you have any faith at all, you have way more power than you could possibly imagine to achieve the goals that God has given you. So if you can't do this, if I tell you you need to forgive somebody seven times in one day, if that's necessary, you need to rebuke them seven times again and again and again without attacking them, just being like, you can't do that. No, that's wrong. You can't do that. And you just, with patience, seven—I mean, rebuking somebody seven times may even be harder than forgiving them seven times to do it properly. And then they say, yeah, oh, I was wrong. And you go, it's okay again. <laughs> I don't think you're even allowed to say again. Right? Seven times, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, increase our faith. And, and, you know, Jesus is probably thinking something like this. You guys, this isn't even hard. And they're like, Jesus, we can possibly do this. Please increase our faith. He's like, look, that's not your problem. You see, because the, the problem it here is, is that faith doesn't grow by just getting volume. And here's, here's why this is a problem, okay? And I'm, I'll probably talk about this on a podcast because you probably don't want to hear my shtick about this for 25 minutes right now. But do you notice what's actually ha- what actually happens when they say, to Jesus, increase our faith? What is the negative thing that's actually happening there? The thing that Jesus has to rebuke? It's the transfer of responsibility. Do you see? If I had more faith from you, Jesus, then I could do these very hard things that you're telling me to do. But if you don't increase my faith, I just don't know if I can do them. How many times have you faced something in your life that is very difficult? You don't want to do it. You do want to escape it. You absolutely know what Jesus wants you to do. And you just feel like you don't want to do it. And so you pray, God, I need more faith. And you kind of tell yourself in a subconscious sort of way that like Jesus had better come through for you and give you more faith, meaning something like I should feel better about doing the right thing. And if that happens, then I'll do the right thing. And if it doesn't happen, then I won't. And then I'll like kind of subtly blame God, even though I won't do it explicitly, that like he should have come through for me and he didn't. Because God didn't come through for me, how could I possibly, right? There's this great passage in um, the book Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple where he's talking to a guy who basically had just beaten his girlfriend almost to death. And he says, he says, Doctor, the beer went mad. And I'm afraid if you don't, if you don't help me, if you don't treat me, I'm going to do it again. Right? And Dalrymple says, says, do you notice what's just happened here? He has just made his girlfriend beating my fault and my responsibility, and he's not only absolved himself from what he's done in the past, he's already pre-absolved himself for the next poor victim he's going to beat up in the future! At which point I said, it's not my fault. I don't have to treat you. You are doing this because you choose to. And he's like, and he says, doctor, you don't know my past. And he says, I don't need to know anything about your past. Your past has nothing to do with this. And in parentheses, he's like, now obviously I thought his past had something to do with this, but that was not the point to make at the moment. Right? You see, the minute these disciples say increase our faith, yeah, they want their faith increased. They want to be more spiritually substantial the easy way. They want God to just beam down spiritual strength on them so that they can be strong. And Jesus' response is like, I w- you don't get to transfer responsibility to me. The problem is not that I have not been generous enough in faith. That's not the problem, okay? So if you're praying that to God, you're like, if God, just give me more faith. That is not your problem. And Jesus is not going to accept the transfer of responsibility that you're making when you say, well, God, if you would just give me more faith, I would do it. What Jesus will do is teach you the truth that you're ignoring and call you to repent of the perspective that is making you feel emotionally weak and allowing you to hold on to your spiritual entitlement. The spiritual entitlement makes your situation feel unjust. The feeling of injustice makes you feel like you shouldn't have to endure it. And that feeling of injustice gives you a felt reason why you can reject the will of God and do whatever you want. Because you're a victim. You're not a responsible agent being called to bear the image of God in a broken world for its redemption. Right? And so Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you the story that you really need to reorder your faith towards the truth so that your faith will be strong enough to lead you in the direction you need to go. He says, imagine this. Imagine you had a servant, one servant. Okay, so it's like a small farm. You've got one servant. You send your servant out to work in the fields all day. It's hot out there. They, they come in. They're sweaty. They're dirty. They've worked 12 hours already. Six to six. It's dinner time, Right? He said, would you say to your servant, listen, you've worked a hard day. 
I'm sure you're tired. Why don't you sit down at the table? I'll make dinner, right? And then I'll serve you, and it'll be great. No, he's like, that's not what happens. The master's like, hope you had a nice day. Go get washed up and make my dinner and bring it to me not smelling like sheep. And I'll eat and drink. And then after that, and you take care of it. See, notice Jesus says this. He says the master will say, after you've done that, then you can eat and drink. You see, the master's including his own generosity towards the servant and saying that it's in his mind that he needs to be taken care of. This is not a hard master in the hypothetical situation. This is not some mean guy. He's like, look, I need dinner. You need to go wash up. Bring me my dinner. I'll eat and drink. And then you can go eat and drink and take care of yourself, right? Jesus is like, he's not gonna— he, That's how it works. Now, okay, so I'm, I was thinking about how— Like, how do you illustrate this in a modern world? Okay, so I need, I need three volunteers. Did you guys work it out? Okay, just come up here. So like, how, one of you stand here, one of you stand there, and one of you stand here. Okay, so one way to think about this is, what is your relationship— to goodness, okay? Because what goodness demands from you abstractly, that is what the God who is there actually demands from you directly, okay? So you can talk about goodness as your—as you have some relationship to goodness because that's the sort of the commands or what Jesus has called you to that rests upon your conscience, and that's also what the God, the being who is the person of God, actually demands from you. Does that make sense? So, okay. I don't know your name. What's your name? Kimmy. Okay, so this is Kimmy. Okay, so I'm goodness— that's a stretch, right? Okay, so I'm goodness, and Kimmy has a relationship with me. Okay, so the relationship that basically all of humanity, apart from understanding the gospel properly, is going to naturally have with goodness is that Kimmy is going to think goodness is a broker. Okay? So I'm going to tell Kimmy, Kimmy, you have to go to work and do some kind of service to make Jolie's life better, for which she'll pay you for. And in that exchange, both of your lives will be improved. That's your moral duty. Okay, so go over and like pretend you're doing something with her. Okay, so she goes to work, and she does whatever. Julie buys it from her. They're both happy. They've exchanged labor. Economy has happened. We're all better off. This is a moral good, and Kimmy has done what she's supposed to do. Okay, so Kimmy's done with work. So she comes back to me, goodness, and she's like, goodness, I went to work. I did my duty. I did what I was supposed to do. And I go, great job, Kimmy. Here's your payment for doing—because Kimmy's like, okay, so pay me my goodness wage. So I give Kimmy— her goodness wage. Okay, so now she has two goodness dollars, right? Now, the next duty that comes along for Kimmy to do is—what's your name? Megan. Megan. Is Megan is her sister, okay? And they're like having kind of a fight, and Megan is getting kind of testy, right? And so Kim, Kimmy's job is to de-escalate the situation. I mean, goodness requires for her to de-escalate the situation, love her sister, right? And try to hear her, okay? That's what goodness requires, right? And so here's the problem, though. Kimmy's had a long day at work. Kimmy doesn't want to do it. So she turns to goodness and she says, goodness, how much does this one cost? <laughs> and I go, one dollar, right? So she doesn't want to love Megan, right? So she just pays me one of her goodness dollars. And now she doesn't have to be. She yells at Megan, says, I hate your guts. She's like, I hate you too, right? And then that's, that's it. So now she still has a goodness dollar. She's still a good person, okay? She got to push this away because she did that over there. And so she's working with the goodness broker. So like maybe she adopts a kid. She gets like $30, you know, and then, right? And so then she doesn't want to pay her taxes. So she pays me $5. And then like, this is how it goes. So like, and this is how people relate to the concept of goodness. Okay, give me my mind back. Thank you. All right. Right? Goodness is a broker, and as long as you feel like your balance is up, you can do what you want, right? And everybody kind of subjectively works it out for some. Okay, so now, let's pretend that Kimmy has, like, come to Jesus. Like, she believes in the gospel and all of that, okay? So now she, she goes to work, and she does stuff with Julie, and they, have, they enrich each other's lives. They do what they're supposed to do. She comes back to me, and she's like, she's like, goodness, how much do I get? How much do I get? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> you did what you were supposed to do, Right? Good job. It's a good job. You don't get any money, right? And now you're, now you're having an argument with Megan, and you're supposed to be good to her, so you can do that, right? So now there are, she's like listening. She's like, okay, how do I de-escalate this? We're having the same fight, right? And she does it, right? That's what she's way harder than work was. And so she turns to me, she goes, How much do I get? Nothing. You were supposed to do that. This is basic goodness, right? So see the difference? I'm her master. I don't pay her anything. She's supposed to go to work. She's supposed to be good to other people. She's supposed to do all this stuff. She does it because I'm her master. I only demand what's good from her, and she's supposed to do it. Thanks, girls. That was really great. Do you see the point? 
you see the point? You see, in the state of depravity, in the state of uh, if we don't understand the basic understandings of the gospel and what we are and who we are and what our identity is, we will naturally as human beings engage in what Martin Luther called religion, what we might call moralism, right? Which is the idea that I'm a good person, I do my own goodness math, and I take the deposits from the broker goodness that I think I deserve, and I pay back what I think I owe. Now, not only is that just fundamentally false— but also, you always withdraw more than you really deserve, and you pay back less than it should really cost. So you're actually laundering and cheating the whole system, too. And that's how we live. And the only way to not scandalize every little one, the only way to rebuke but not attack, the only way to forgive and release resentment, the only way to have faith for every situation to reject the corruption of spiritual and moral entitlement and be ready to believe and act in each case and not feel so entitled that you can reject it is to know that goodness is not your broker. You are its servant. You can obey it now. You get nothing. You don't get paid. You are an unworthy servant. You just did your duty. Good for you. That's good. If you do what's good, you don't get something for it. But the good got done. That's what you're here for. And then you do good thing number two. You get paid for it. You got to do the good. You get to be the servant of goodness. And the God who stands over it. That's good for you. You get jack for it. You get anything for it. You aren't—so right, so Jesus is saying, do you understand? At the end of the day, here's what— the way you increase your faith is you tell yourself the most important truth that your faith needs to hear. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe me not having to forgive, not having to rebuke. God doesn't owe me to be able to behave however I want, to give in to my own corruption that might scandalize others. God doesn't owe me that stuff. I am the servant of God's goodness, and I am the servant of God. And on my best day, my most perfect day, I will— only ever be a servant who has completed the duties he was supposed to do. Right? That's the point. And see, if you get that point, you won't, you won't try to transfer your responsibility to God and be like, increase our faith. And you, you also will realize that forgiveness is just something you're supposed to do. Your rebuke is just something you're supposed to do because you love others and you want there to be good relationships. You want people to develop well and you want people to grow into the image of God and that's part of your job. You're the new Pharisees, but you're trying to be better. <laughs> and only in that way can the weak among us not be scandalized by our corruptions. Right? Okay, so let's talk about a few—oh, I did that already? Look, we're ahead of schedule. Okay, let's do some applications for this. Okay, the first is actually listen to Jesus' warning. Like, read this passage over again. Journal about it. Think about it. Like, Jesus is like, look, you need to watch yourselves. This, what he's speaking about, this corruption is one of the most fundamental realities of human beings. This is something you have to be daily vigilant of. It is always creeping in because the flesh— the, remember, inside your little spiritual castle, the flesh is there with you, and he's always trying to open the door to your enemies. And this is his—entitlement's like his favorite enemy. He's like, entitlement, I will get that door open for you. And until, unless you are incredibly vigilant against the flesh— incredibly vigilant against this kind of corruption, it'll always creep back in Jesus. When Jesus says, you need to watch yourself, that is a continuative thing. We need to watch our hearts every day, okay? Secondly is, therefore, you need to have spiritual vigilance, not just for the corruption that could enter into your spiritual life that could scandalize other people, but the motivations for that corruption. You see, Jesus is trying to deal with this at the root. He doesn't say, listen, don't be corrupt. Don't use your spiritual offices or your spiritual capacities just to get money or get position or get power or comfort or control. You need to actually deal with the deeper places of your heart from which that weed grows, where you know you are God's servant, and that's all you're doing. And so when you talk about, when we talk about vigilance and spiritual vigilance, don't just deal with the outside of, am I acting corruptly? You have to deal with the inner vigilance of, am I believing faithfully? Right? And if you feel your faith weakening, that may not be that, like, something is just inexplicable as stealing your faith. If your faith is weakening, your faith has been corrupted by something. And you need to sort out what that is. And if you are having trouble sorting out what that is, that's why there's all the rest of us here. 
talk with somebody you trust. And if they can't help you, then talk with somebody wiser that you trust. Right? Third is embrace, embrace both poles of your identity in Christ. Okay? So Jesus came to reinstitute us as God's favored sons and daughters, his sons and daughters. Jesus went to go prepare a place for you, an inheritance for you. You are heirs with Christ, right? As children of God, we are together the bride of Christ for eternity. And that is meant to help you. The reason God told you beforehand, and he wants that to help you, he wants to help you when you feel discouraged, filled with gloom, filled with fear, filled with inferiority, all the things that would, that would destroy your courage and ruin your boldness and take away your spiritual ferocity. He wants to encourage you with that, right? But here's the thing. He's not going to give you a cure for one of your diseases and not the other. He's not interested in just curing all of your inferiorities and then not turning around curing your prides. Your pride's at least as dangerous as your inferiority. And so he also says, listen, you are my favorite son and daughter. You are also my servant. And your identity is God's servant, that we are unworthy servants. Look, he says, the, the last imperative in this passage is, you should say. He literally says, listen, if you're a Christian, you should say this to yourself. Every day. Say it to yourself. Every day. I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. And then if it helps you, you can also say, and I am God's favorite son. And I am God's favorite daughter. You have to have both of those in your minds at every moment. Because one cures your fears. And the other cures your prides. And you need both. You have to see yourself as this servant all the way at the bottom who only ever does his duty and never accrues anything and is only just doing what's right and that's all there is to it. And you have no claims from it. And that you are the heir with Christ. And you need to believe them both or you won't have the strength you need and you won't have the vigilance you need and you won't have the courage you need to live faithfully in the life that you're actually going to have. Does that make sense? Okay, four. When you rebuke people, because Jesus gave the imperative, if somebody sins against you, rebuke them. Your point is not to loose your anger on them. That's not, the, that's not the goal. The goal is to think about what you fear for their future if they continue to behave this way, and what you hope for them if they would consent to amend it. And you rebuke with that end in mind. Okay. It's not about you getting justice, okay? Rebuke is not about punishment. It's not about winning. It's not about justice. Okay, God does that stuff. What you do is you plead on God's behalf for their self-amendment, for their concession, for their consent in their conscience that it's right and they should become again the servant of the good. And in doing so, they come back into relationship with you. Does that make sense? And if you don't rebuke that way, you aren't doing what Jesus said to do. You actually are doing a spiritually entitled corruption of it, which could lead to the scandalization of another person. So then again, think of yourself as the big stone tied around your neck sinking in the ocean. And hopefully that will sober you up and motivate you in another direction. Okay. Five. Forgive in every case of repentance verbally and completely. If somebody—listen, one of the things I see, and this is partly because of the felt moral embarrassment we have when we either rebuke or we— um, forgive, is that people use sarcasm and they use quips and stuff like that when they're actually repenting and forgiving. And that's actually one of the moments in your life you need to be the most sincere, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. Okay? So when you re repent, you should repent in the most non-sarcastic, direct, and sincere language you can possibly muster, and you should do it as completely as possible. I did this. It was wrong. I, I should have known it was wrong, or I did know it was wrong. I'm sorry I did this to you. I'm going to try to never do it again. I, th I think that I know why I— like, whatever. But you—and you, you don't be like, I, you know, I wish you didn't contribute so much to the problem. You, you don't say that. It's just like, I—you take full responsibility. You label it for what it was. You say what an offense to God it was, and you say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that to you. I'm going to try to never do that again. And then when you forgive, you forgive just as explicitly. Thank you so much for apologizing. It did hurt me. Or I, I think you're right in what it was, and I totally forgive you. And I'm so filled with joy that you came and you said that because I know that was hard for you, right? Both rebuke and repentance needs to be explicit, clear, complete, humble. Does that make sense? Okay. Six, you can become a model rebuker and repenter. Because 
rebuking well and repenting well are very difficult and fairly fine virtues. And you're going to be bad at it at first, and you can become a lot better. So, like, I feel like I've gotten better at repenting. I still have to do it pretty frequently. And so part of what I get to do when I repent is I get to embody what repentance is supposed to look like. That's one of the things I get to do. And so I can try to display for the people I have to repent to something that encourages and strengthens them and makes them feel valued and makes them feel like I'm putting God first again instead of myself. And if I do a good job of that, or if I receive a rebuke well, or if I receive a rebuke well, or if I receive a a, a repentance well, if I go like, listen, I know that was hard for you to say, I'm so glad that you said that. It makes me so—I'm so heartened for your future because I think, man, if you can kick that thing, you're gonna—like, I see all kinds of other gifts in you blossoming, right? That, like, when somebody asks for forgiveness, I don't just accept it. I bless them, right? You can become a model repenter. You can become a model rebuker. You can become a model forgiver. And the more you become a model, and you'll, you'll implicitly, even when you're at your worst moment, have to repent— you'll be able to display for others, and, and everybody can get better at the difficult duty of social health, right? Seven, understand how faith actually increases. Stop asking God to increase your faith like it's like a magic cup that it, he pours water into. There's nowhere in the Bible that seems to teach that, Right? When God fills people with faith, usually one of two things is happening. Either they change their understanding about something dramatically, or they are presently engaged in some risky obedience. Those are the moments in Scripture where people's faith seems to rise up, and God seems to fill people with faith. Right? And so in the book of Acts, you'll see people actually doing something bold, or hearing the gospel proclaimed. And the Holy Spirit comes, and they're full of faith, and something— something powerful happens. It's fairly rare that, like, you don't want to obey God, and you go, like, God, please fill me with faith, and that happens. I can't think of hardly anywhere where that happens. You might be able to twist the story of Gideon into something like that, but there's not a lot of options, okay? Okay. And last, enjoy and be encouraged by the gospel, okay? So it is absolutely true that you are the servant of God if you belong to Jesus, and he doesn't have to give you anything. And he could ask you to serve him in the worst possible conditions, to do the good your entire life, and give you nothing for it. He doesn't owe you anything. In fact, that's actually what the Old Testament Sadducees believed. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed that life was hard, but they believed that the laws of God were just and good, and that you should do them. And maybe God would bless you in this life, or he might curse you some in this life. But for the most part, there was no afterlife. You're not cooking for anything in the future. It's just here and now, man. And you, you obey because it's good. And that's not illogical. God, from our perspective at least, God could have done that, but he didn't do that. His promises are unblushingly in the direction of his doing infinitely more than that. And in Luke's gospel itself, he tells the story about those who are his servants throughout their lives, who are vigilant and who serve him and who do not fall into the corruption of spiritual entitlement and give themselves to him at each moment in faith in their lives, and they don't scandalize the weak ones, but bring them in. He says, what will actually happen in that last day, when you come in from the long, hot field of your life, when it would be your job to get to work again and clean up and serve God forever and with the same difficulty, what will actually happen is that the master who is entitled to everything will get up from the table, clothe himself like a servant, ask you to sit at his table, and serve you for your joy. That's the actual promise of the gospel. Positively and negatively, you are never going to serve your way under Jesus. The master, the real master actually went out to the field on your behalf. He's done all the work you never did. In all the ways that we are not just unprofitable but unworthy servants, Jesus, the greater servant, the one who is himself the master, came and served and did everything you haven't done. Everything that makes you and I terrible servants, he did and accomplished on our, be- on our behalf for us and imputed to us in our union with him. He is the perfect servant, and we are the perfect servant in him only. And he gives us the status of perfect servant, just as he gives us the status of perfect son and daughter of God. And it is in his death and resurrection alone that we can even say, I'm an unworthy servant, and I've only done my duty. But to know that God has counted us in Christ 
as worthy servants who have done their duty and who will say this in the end, well done, good and faithful servant. How do you think you get that reward? He says you should actually say we're unworthy servants, but then he says when you come into my Father's kingdom, he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It's because you're in union with Christ, who did everything well and who is the perfectly faithful servant. And in him, you are counted just until he makes you just. You are counted good until he makes you good. You are counted profitable until he makes you profitable. Enjoy the gospel. Enjoy that in all your failures, in all the weaknesses of our servanthood, Christ has performed perfectly on our behalf. And if we put our faith in his death and resurrection, he imputes to us that greatness. And then he remakes us by the power of the Spirit into the image of that greatness. But only if we don't look at him and say, increase our faith. Only if we will embrace our identity in him as his son or daughter and as his servant and to give ourselves to the things he demands we give ourselves to. Whether it's not to scandalize our weaker brothers and sisters or whether it's to give ourselves to repentance and forgiveness or whether it's to do everything we do with the heart of a servant who is owed nothing. Because a servant who believes they're owed nothing but who believes they're doing the good, can do everything with happiness. Because if you're a servant and you're owed nothing, what are you angry about when you're serving? What injustice is being done to you? Nothing. You're not owed anything. No injustice is being done to you. You're actually privileged to be able to serve the good in the king. Why not be happy? You can be. And you will be if you can accept your identity in Christ as his servant, just as well as you accept that you're his son or daughter. Let's pray. God, as we get ready to rehearse the ritual of embracing your death and resurrection for us, the new covenant purchased in your blood, accomplished by your perfect servanthood of the Father, we pray, God, that you would fill us with faith in this act of obedience, in this change of mind, in this embracing of our identity. And that we would be filled with the joy that should come in being a servant who doesn't see themselves as a victim of some kind of injustice. That you are not a bad broker, but we are the servants of the good and the servants of your demands that are good and that our goal is to produce beauty in the world, that we don't need to be paid for that. That all our work would be our pleasure is our goal because we would love you as we should. Help us in Jesus' name.